You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, church. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here at King's Church. It's exciting to have a full house. And uh, today, as we continue in Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 9, which is something Ben touched on last week, kind of at the end of the flood. And after we're, we're actually calling this after the, the flood. Uh, today, we'll see Genesis chapter 8 through 9, what transpires. Now, to be honest, this weekend, as I was finalizing this sermon, I thought, I, I have to find a way to tie in the murder mystery party to my sermon. Now, I was like, how am I going to do that? Oh, look at that. All right. Well, there's some beautiful pictures of some people there. Um, Aldafo, are you in the house, man? That is just incredible. Uh, you and Morgan just rocked that uh, prom pose there. Uh, we did an 80s-themed prom murder mystery dinner this past Friday evening. Uh, we had about 70 people participate in this, and I just want to give a shout-out to Meg Emery for all the work she did on that. She did a phenomenal job. Now, I, I honestly thought about this long and hard. I was like, how am I going to like tie this in? I got to find a way, right? Like, there's just no way. It is too good of something that we did and too hilarious not to tie in. So what I found to be true as I was studying this passage again is that as we get to after the flood, we really have to see the full picture of what's led up to this moment. And what I found was interesting is guess what Genesis 4 begins with? A murder, right? And we see after that murder, and we don't want to make too light of this, okay? It's serious, okay? But after that murder, what we see is that humanity begins to do this deep dive spiral into sin and violence amongst themselves. And the same was somewhat true of our murder mystery dinner. That's maybe a stretch, but let me, hear me out, okay? When you guys arrived to this dinner, you arrived in character. You came in your best 1980s prom attire. You were just getting in your character. You were having fun. We had dancing going on. We had food. It was celebration. Everybody was kind of getting in the groove of things. And then a murder happened in the middle of it. And what we noticed as we were observing you guys, after the murder, the dark side of your characters begins to come out. We see more gossip, more backstabbing, more lying and deceit and trickery and bribery happening, all to try to solve this murder. And what ends up happening is as we continue to spiral down into the evening, we find ourselves in a lot of confusion which is why out of all 70 of you, only one of you got the murder right. Shout out to Zoe over here. Great job. It is like a microcosm of what leads up to the flood for us. Is that after, after the sin, the fall sin in the garden and in the murder of, Cain, or of Abel by Cain, we see the spiraling down effect of sin that leads to the flood. And then we emerge out of the floodwaters today, and what we find ourselves is it's this kind of new beginning for creation, this reboot of sorts that happens after the flood. Now, this reminded me of one of my favorite episodes of The Office, one of my wife and my favorite episodes of The Office uh, that, that we used to watch, where Michael Scott, who is one of the main characters, if you haven't watched the show, it's okay, just track with me for a second. One of his, one of his famous lines is, in a moment of desperation, he declares bankruptcy. All right, anybody remember this? Okay. <laughs> in this moment, Michael, I, I, this is going somewhere, okay. Uh, in this moment, uh, Michael Scott has hit an all-time low because of his kind of 
well, insane girlfriend, Jan. Uh, he has wasted all of his finances. He is in a really bad spot. And so one of his accountants tells him, well, you need to declare bankruptcy. And he thinks that means that all he has to do is declare vocally that he is bankrupt and all the mess just goes away. But what he finds is that's not true. Just because he declares bankruptcy and he's given kind of this new start, he still has to deal with the mess and the debt that he's occurred over his time with Jan. And this is precisely what we find, find ourselves here after the flood. God is, is kind of given us this new beginning. He has this new rebooting of creation with Noah and his family. But what we find is that just because they come out of the ark and they're able to, to start over, it doesn't mean that they still don't have to deal with the stuff inside their hearts. Because when they emerge out of the ark, out of this boat, they carry something dark within them. There is still sin present in their hearts. And even in this new beginning, what we're going to find today is God in his graciousness, in his kindness, he is committed to having a relationship with us and being patient with us even while we are still sinners. He is going to show us how Noah and his family can emerge from this flood with a new beginning. He is going to show us a way forward for humanity, which is going to lead us to our main idea today from our text. We're going to see that God is both faithful to his promise in this text, and he is patient with us. He is faithful to his promise, meaning that he is a God of relationship, and he is patient with us, that he is a God of relationship, that even in our sin, he has great care and great patience towards his creation. Our outline is going to flow straight from the text. We're going to center around this covenant that God makes with Noah. We're going to explain what this is in just a moment, but we're going to see in our outline both the promise of God's covenant with Noah, the beauty of this promise, what it entails today, and we're going to see the sign of God's covenant with Noah and how this sign points us to God's character and ultimately our need for him. So as we begin this morning, let's just give kind of a recap of where we are. Like I said at the beginning in the intro, this is the book of Genesis we're studying all the way back to the beginning. We're going back to when God created the world. He creates humanity and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that begins this downward spiral we're talking about, where humanity multiplies their sin and violence to the point where Cain kills his brother Abel. And then one of Cain's descendants, uh, Lamech, actually goes to, to the point where he's renowned for his violence, and humanity continues to spiral. And we find ourselves then in Genesis chapter 6. And how does God react to this? Well, we saw last week that the word of God says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the, the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it grieved God's heart. So God sends this flood, these floodwaters of judgment. It's a block to the way of humanity's wickedness. And it's rooted in his grief of his heart. Now we see that in the flood, we're introduced to the waters of God's judgment, which paint a very vivid picture for us of how God is going to handle and deal with sin and violence with his justice. And we learn in the flood something very beautiful. That in the midst of these waters of judgment, we see God's mercy and grace burst forth. That he takes this family and he puts them in a boat. And with a microcosm of his creation, he preserves his creation. And he passes them through the waters, and mercifully, they are then brought to the other side. Now, I know when we read this story, our first thought, if we're just honest, even my first thought when I read this is, but, but God still wiped out the earth, right? 
Like, how do we see God's goodness in this? How do we see God's goodness reflected in this disaster? Well, the story of the flood, as we saw last week, is really a story that highlights the mercy of God. He is restraining the evil of humanity, the ever-increasing evil of humanity. God is, is intervening in a way to stop that downward spiral of evil. But God doesn't take pleasure in the flood. It reminds us that it broke his heart to see the wickedness of humanity. You see, when we look at the flood story, we're not seeing a God who acts this, with this deliberate destruction. He's this temperamental God who's just having a bad day, and he says, I'm just going to wipe it out. That's not what we find here in the text. We see that God was actually acting to restore the goodness of his creation. God was preserving his creation through this one family that they would pass through the flood, and then Noah would kind of emerge as this new Adam that he would emerge and be commissioned to the same thing that Adam and Eve were commissioned to do in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. That's where we pick up in our text today with the promise of the covenant with Noah. We see in verse 16 that God wastes no time speaking to Noah, and he says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now, to, to understand why they're going out of the ark here is to understand, again, the context of what's happening. With this flood, this is not just a flood of destructive force. It is a flood that shows a decreation of God's creation. It is teaching us something of how creation unravels under sin. If you notice in, in verse uh, 11 of chapter 7, it says, On the day when the floods began, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open." That sounds very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 1, 6, and 7 where God says that there's an expanse of water that he's separating in his creation. He restrains the waters in the deep and he restrains the waters in the heavens. And here we see the uncreation of that, the decreation of that, that those restraints are bursting forth and flooding the earth. And then after the water subsides in the beginning of chapter eight, we see once again, this recreation that's happening. In verse one of chapter eight, God made a wind. And this word wind is the same Hebrew word for spirit. And what do we find in Genesis chapter 1-2? What is hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1-2? The Spirit of God, bringing order out of chaos. And here, God sends a wind to bring order out of the chaotic floodwaters and to separate the water and the dry land. And then in verse 2, we see that God is putting back everything in which he created. He restrains the waters in the heavens and restrains the waters in the deep. And then we get to the end of Genesis chapter 1 in the creation narrative, and we find that this is very similar to what we see here at the end of Genesis chapter 8. That what does God tell the animals and the birds and the creepy things that he has created? To what? To swarm the earth. And for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And here at the end of Genesis, or Genesis chapter 8 verse 17, after Noah comes out of the ark, he is told to bring out every living thing with him, that they may swarm the earth once again and repeat that same mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden to be fruitful and multiply. See, when, at, when Noah steps off this ark, when he steps off the boat for the very first time, he is a representation of us. He is a representation of humanity. He is this new Adam, but he is not like Adam stepping into a pristine and perfect garden. Noah is stepping into a world that he knows is not perfect. Noah is stepping out into a world where he knows that things spiral out of control, that things fall apart because of sin. He is looking out on a world that he knows has been destructive. 
So what could possibly give Noah the courage to step out and continue in this moment? What can, knowing all that, knowing what Noah just went through with the flood, what could possibly give him the courage to start afresh in this world again as God is commanding him to do so? Well, what Noah needs is the same thing we need today. The thing that gives us courage to step out, the thing that gives us courage to start afresh in our lives is a relationship with him. That he has a radical commitment to us that only he can provide. And that's precisely what we see here with a covenant and what the Bible calls a covenant that God establishes with Noah. Now, briefly, before we get into this, I just want to make sure we understand what a covenant is. So I'm going to ask the question, what is a covenant? Well, perhaps the most simple way we look at a covenant in the Bible is it is God's commitment to us. And we see that here in this text. We're going to see that it's God's commitment to be faithful and his faithful character is the foundation for Noah. It is God's commitment to his, his promise and his purposes in the future, which he's going to put before Noah's eyes. And it's God binding his heart to ours which is what he's going to show Noah in this text. Now, uh, covenants continue to, to show up in the Bible. Uh, not just this covenant that he makes with Noah in creation, but God will then make a covenant with Abraham in just a few short chapters. And then as we read back in our study in Exodus at the beginning of this year, we saw that God will make a covenant with the, the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And then later he's going to make a covenant with King David. And all that's going to culminate what's called the new covenant in which he'll make through his son Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps one of the best ways to understand what a covenant is, is to see the, the contrast between a covenant and a modern day contract. Now, some of you are, are lawyers in the house. You understand this idea of contract much better than I do. So if I slip up and say something wrong, please gently correct me later, okay? Because this is your field of expertise, not mine. But, but in a modern day contract, the, the basic of it is this. It is, it's a two-party agreement. Two parties come together and they enter into a legal binding agreement, contract. Think about purchasing a home. You purchase a home, you enter an agreement, it's about business, it's professional. And once that transaction is over, the parties then go their separate ways. The, the, the seller goes a separate way from the buyer. Now in a biblical, con, uh, excuse me, a, a biblical um, covenant, we see there are some similarities. It is an agreement. There are at times uh, terms and conditions and expectations given in a covenant, but it's also quite different from a contract. It's not about business, but it's about a relationship. In a covenant, God is relating to us. He's binding himself to us, which means it's not temporary. It's eternal. It's permanent. And it doesn't focus mainly on negotiation between the two parties. It focuses on one party, and in this text we'll see God giving themselves to the other. Now, Let's look at this contract, or excuse me, this covenant, and let's see how God works through this covenant, what he promises. Let's start in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Noah comes out of the ark, he gives an offering to the Lord, and the Lord says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then in Genesis 9, he speaks directly to Noah in verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you 
And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, there's some particulars of this covenant. Number one, we see who is this covenant for? Well, it is a universal covenant, meaning that it is for all of creation. Notice he says it is to Noah, it is to all of his offspring, including us today, and it is to every living creature. Every living creature is for all creation. It is also a unilateral covenant, meaning that it is God's covenant. We don't have to ratify this covenant for it to go into effect. We don't have to agree to it. We don't even have to believe that it exists for it to be true. And it's also an unconditional covenant. Notice that he says it doesn't matter what we do. This covenant remains true. In, uh, in essence, this is what we call a covenant of God's common grace. Notice that even after he gives this covenant, or as he's given this covenant, he says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The floodwaters might have cleansed the earth through judgment, but it did not cleanse the human heart. There's still something within our hearts. And we're going to see that play out even in the story of Noah. We're going to see God is, is so committed in his covenant that even Noah, who's going to realize very shortly after this, that he is no better than his forefathers before the flood. Because right after this, he falls in the same pattern as Adam. What does he do? He sins because the fruit of a tree. He becomes a drunkard, and then he curses one of his sons in this very same chapter. But God is going to show us here that he remains faithful to his promise that this covenant is one about protection because of his patience. If we were to try to sum up this covenant, we would see that this is a covenant of preservation and a covenant of protection. God is holding back his future condemnation through a flood because he has a plan, a plan that will unfold in these series of covenants, a plan that starts here with Noah and will pass on to Abraham and to the people of Israel and to David. And finally, that plan will culminate in Christ Jesus. It is a plan to come and to change the human heart because of a covenant made by the sacrifice of his own son, which is why 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that all of God's promises, including this one, find their yes in Christ. And so this is a covenant both of protection and preservation for his creation. Let's see how this unfolds in chapter 9. It's a covenant that preserves. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. What does he say? He says he blesses them. He tells them again to be fruitful and multiply. In essence, God is preserving his creation by saying, I'm not trying to stunt the population of humanity, but I'm blessing it. I want you to continue to increase and fill the earth. Notice then he also preserves humanity by providing food for humanity. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. So to all my vegetarians in the house, yes, it is good to eat meat. Right? God says it right here. Everything is good. It's for our food. But then notice, not only is he preserving his creation, he is also protecting his creation. Verse 2, he is protecting humans from animals. He says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't be hurt by animals, okay? So don't take license with this and say, let me go roll around with the lions at the zoo, okay? That is a bad idea. It doesn't mean that there are not mosquitoes who are going to bite us or bees to sting us or dogs to chase us. 
But what it does mean in a general sense that when you go hiking and you see a deer in the woods and you step on a twig, what does that deer do? It runs. Because God has placed an uneasy existence between the animals and humanity. We don't have quite the same relationship that Adam had in the garden to animals anymore. We don't have them parading in front of us and naming them. That's not the kind of sort of control we have now in a sinful world. But God is protecting us by giving us this uneasy peace between animals and humans. But he's also protecting not just humans from animals, but animals from humans. If you look at verse 4, he says, yes, I've given you animals for food, but you can't eat an animal with its lifeblood in it. Okay? Now, this is not a commandment for how you cook your steak. All right? If you're like me and you like it medium, you like it a little red inside, all right? That's okay. God knows that that is the proper way to eat it. This is not saying that your steaks need to be well done. That is wrong. We know that before this covenant, all right? What he means by the lifeblood here is there's a distinction between how humans ought to eat their food and animals ought to eat their food. What he's saying here is humans don't eat their food like animals. We don't go and tear into an animal like a wild beast. We don't eat it while it's got its lifeblood in there. This is also foreshadowing something beautiful about the sacrificial system. That there's something precious about blood that God is going to command us to use in such a way that honors him. In essence, he's saying we can't be unnecessarily cruel to animals in this world. And then he's also going to protect humans from humans. Look at the second half of verse 5. He says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. If we go back before the flood, chapter 4 again, to the descendants of Cain, we see, we see the descendants of Cain specifically in one of his descendants, Lamech. And it says that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. In other words, we see this unbridled nature of sin in this world. According to Lamech, if you, kill, if you hurt me, any way you hurt me, I'm going to kill you. If you injure an eye, I'm going to slaughter your tribe. If you do one thing to me, I'm going to avenge that pain by 77-fold. That is what was happening before the flood, and now God in this covenant, what he is doing is he is instituting what we call proportionate justice. That there is justice against those who murder human life. Now, this is important for us today. Because this covenant that he makes with Noah, it is a building block of justice and civility in our world. It is important for us because it shows us the basic building blocks of society, the basic building blocks for how we will later see fleshed out in the New and the Old Testament, how to properly understand the role of government. Now, we're not going to get into that, but what is very clear here is that God knows that even in this covenant that we're going to be sinful. And we're going to make mistakes. But in his kindness, he is granting us his grace through this covenant to help restrain evil, to keep us from falling back into that pre-flood era of humanity. Now, what does this mean for us today? Let me just give us two brief points of application. Number one, God values his creation and so should we. God values his creation and so should we. That's why God tells Noah, I'm making a covenant not just with you, but with all this not just with you, but with everything, because I care about it all. And likewise, we need to treat, or excuse me, treat uh, creation accordingly. Have you ever considered that the birds of the air, the trees in the forests, are recipients of this covenant? That they are recipients of this covenant just like us. 
which should make us pause and think, are we viewing creation in the way that God values it? Are we considering the value that God places on his creation that echoes his glory? And secondly, God values human life, and so should we. God values human life, and so should we. The reason why God says whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall this blood be shed is not because we're basically good. He knows there's sin in this world. There's sin in our human hearts. But the reason God says this is because we are all made in his image. And God's purpose for his image bearers is that we would fill the earth with his glory. Therefore, what we do to one another, we do to our creator who created us to represent and reflect him in this world. So what God is saying here is as human beings who walk this earth, we have a level of responsibility to uphold the sacredness of human life. The very basic, what that means for us today is that we should not murder with no consequences, okay? The movie The Purge is a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. It means that we don't just mistreat people with no consequences. It means that no matter the skin color, no matter the age, no matter if you believe in God today or not, no matter where you come from, whether you're six weeks old in your mother's womb or you're six weeks from your last breath on earth, God is saying he values human life and so should we. God is showing us here that he is protecting and he is preserving everything from this judgment of flood because he's patient. He is preserving this world so that nothing, nothing will thwart his purposes to fill the earth with his glory, with men and women who reflect his glory. And he is actually asking us to join in on this work, not only as recipients of his common grace, but to care for the common good, to care for justice, to care for the welfare of others, to treat human beings, and to see how God values this creation. And so he makes and establishes this covenant with Noah. That is a covenant of both his protection and his preservation of his creation. And then he gives a sign of the covenant with Noah. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember my everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that you have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, we mentioned last week that this bow uh, is the sign here of the covenant. Now, it's not necessarily this bow is a new phenomenon to Noah, but rather God is signifying that this is the appropriate sign for this covenant. There's reason to believe as we think about uh, the creation of this world that uh, rainbows, as we call them, uh, have already existed. But nonetheless, what we said last week, and we repeat this week, that the word here that is used for bow is not necessarily a rainbow. It is the Hebrew word for a war bow or a battle bow, as been said last week. And yes, the rainbow is shaped in that kind of bow. But what God is laying out for us here is not just let's put a rainbow as the happy end of the story. He is showcasing something about his patience, his character. That when this bow goes up in the sky, it is in essence saying that he is laying that war bow down in heaven. 
He is not going to bring a flood again. He is saying, I am, I am having peace with my creation. No more condemnation by flood. Now, this sign is not just pointing to the second chance that he gives his creation here. It points to something much deeper as well. This sign is not just a sign of, of the covenant here with Noah, but it is a foreshadowing on the backdrop of God's provision of salvation. You see, when we read the Bible, we see it as one unified story. And the flood is no exception. The flood points us immediately to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ on the cross, just as the flood story tells us, he submerged under the dark waters of chaos. But his flood story is much different from this one. Because it's not the wicked who perish and the righteous one who is spared. But in Christ, it is the wicked who are spared and the righteous one who submerges under the depths of the water for us. And it's in God who took on flesh and dealt with this violent death of his son on the cross. It becomes the means for us too to have peace with God. And so we think about this bow in the sky. Yes, it is a reminder of God's covenant he is making to all of creation through Noah, but it is also a connector to the larger story of God's redemption. I just want to point out two ways in which we see this in the text. The first is this, the bow is in the clouds. Now this may seem very obvious, but the bow is placed in the clouds. Notice the repetition of the text. When I bring the clouds over the earth, the bow is seen. I will set my bow where? In the clouds. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. Over and over and over again, he emphasizes this bow's placement is in the clouds. Now you can imagine what this must have been like for Noah. Think about this for a moment. He has been in this ark. He has been tossed to and fro by the floodwaters of God's judgment. And he emerges out of that. And now he has to deal with rain clouds coming back, storms coming back. Can you imagine the fear that probably pricked his heart in those moments when he saw those clouds emerging? But yet after the clouds, what does God do? He reminds Noah of his grace. He puts a bow in the backdrop of the clouds. You can't see a rainbow on a pure sunny day. A rainbow can only be seen when it's accompanied by some form of dark stormy weather. And the same is true of how we see God's grace in our lives. We have to see God's grace when we're able to see deep within us the darkness of our own souls. We can experience God's grace when we deal with the storm that is brewing within us. We can experience the beauty and find his grace when we're able to admit, as we all should be able to admit today, we are weak. We are insufficient. We are those with sin. See, the rainbow is a sign here of God's grace for us. And when you go to the cross, you see this meet perfectly in Jesus. And on the cross, you see the storms of God's eternal justice, and it comes and it meets God's radiant love. And in that, we can have peace with God. That through his son, who went to the heart of wrath, the heart of the storm for us, we can know love. We can have peace. But the bow is also a reminder for God. The bow is God's reminder. Time and time again in this text, he says, I will remember my covenant. When I see the bow in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Now, why does God need to remember? Right? Does he have a moment of lapse here where he forgets? No. When it says that God remembers, it says that it, it, it's, it's implying here that God is active. When God remembers, 
it means that God acts on his covenant. When it says he remembers, it means that God is continually acting to withhold this flood, to restrain this flood. The bow is a reminder for us this morning that God is more committed to his promise than you and I will ever be. And that should encourage us. That the constancy between our feet that we need this morning is not what we can do to earn God's favor to protect us from the flood. It's God's faithfulness to not bring the flood upon us. He is faithful to his promise, and he is patient with us. And that's why the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter, he picks up on this flood story. And in the flood story in in 2 Peter, he warns us not to delay, not to delay in repenting and surrendering to God, not to delay to trust the goodness of our God, to believe in him, to receive his gift of salvation through Christ Jesus. See, in Noah's day, It seemed like it was a long time between the the beginning of the construction to the day where the waters came. But nevertheless, the promised judgment did come. In the same way, 2 Peter reminds us that God will come again and he will bring this world to its appropriate end. And that is why Peter both warns and encourages this morning from 2 Peter 3, verse 9. That this flood story reminds us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you feel the touch of God's kindness this morning in this passage? From the rising of the sun to its setting, as long as the earth endures, from seed time and harvest, from winter and summer, we are living under the canopy of God's patience today. And every time the sun comes up, every time we breathe fresh air instead of suffocating under the floodwaters, every time that happens, God is saying to us, he is reminding us, my child, I am patient. I am merciful. I am holding back. And the reason is because, as Peter says, he doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all would turn to him. And not only just across this room, but across the world, God is patiently and tenderly waiting for people to turn to him today. And so as we come to our time of communion, maybe today you feel like you're in a place where you're just too far from God. Or perhaps you know someone in your life that you believe in your heart right now that they're just too far away from God, that he, he is nowhere near them. Or perhaps today you feel like he is nowhere near you. But God's covenant with Noah says that that is not true, that that is an impossibility because there's not a square inch of this earth that we can wonder where God has not already been active, where he has not already committed himself to holding back because he desires that you would have eternal life, not perish. No matter where you are today, God is near And the reason we believe that this morning is because long before Noah, long before God establishes this covenant with Noah, before the very foundations of the earth, God made a covenant with his son. And it was in the son of God who covenanted that he would show his love for us by laying down his life for who? The world. What Noah needed today, or what Noah needed back then, and what we need today to continue is to know that we have a faithful, never-changing, never-failing God who wants to enter in relationship with us.
he will come back. It may be slow, but it's not of some counselorness. In his kindness, in his patience today, he is giving us the opportunity to trust him. He is giving us the opportunity today to receive his grace and to find refuge in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.